0: Today in the podcast, I'm bringing you a conversation with Sarah Hader, who is the co-founder of the Ex-Muslims of North America. Many of you know Sarah from Twitter. Uh, there have been many requests to get her on the podcast. Very happy to finally have her on, but we spoke after the Manchester bombing, but as it turns out, just before the London atrocity, and you know, I suppose... Nothing really changes with each new event, but it is a very strange feeling to more or less expect some new eruption of jihadist insanity sometime soon. So it's just to say it's impossible to keep up with what's happening. But unfortunately, I fear this conversation will seem timely for the rest of our lives. Sarah and I talk about what it means to leave Islam about the unique issues that surround being an ex-Muslim as opposed to being an ex-Christian or an ex-Mormon or even an ex-Scientologist. And Sarah shares this experience that, that very few people spend a lot of time thinking about, which is the experience of being an apostate, living in what would otherwise be the, the safest places on Earth in the safest period human beings have ever enjoyed, but nevertheless being imperiled By the sectarian hatreds of one community. There's a lot of talk about Islamophobia in the news. There's very little talk about the danger and difficulty of being an ex-Muslim in the West. That's why Sarah's organization and her voice are so important. So, without further delay, I bring you Sarah Hader. Enjoy. I'm here with Sarah Hayter. Sarah, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I have been a fan of yours for, it has to be at least a year, two years. How, how, when did you give that talk at the Secular Conference?
1: It was at the American Humanist Association. It was in 2015.
0: I've started to realize that when I estimate the amount of time that has passed, I always should double it. So I said a year and then I went to two years because I knew I had to be wrong this is what happens when you age. That talk was fantastic. And that was, was that the first talk like that that you had given or or had you been sort of on the circuit for a while and I just hadn't noticed?
1: I spoke here and there about my organization, Ex-Muslims of North America, uh, and just apostasy issues. That was the first time, however, that I was really talking about the issues with liberals and Islam and how it kind of coincides in this in this very Strange way,
0: obviously, many people love that talk and and you have many fans among my listeners on this podcast, and uh, many have requested that you get on so i'm uh, I'm very happy to have you here. Speak for a moment about your background and just how you came to be one of the founders of ex-muslims of north America.
1: Sure. Um, so I grew up in what I, what I would consider to be a pretty liberal Muslim family. Uh, I didn't know at the time that, this, that my, my upbringing was so liberal relative to other Muslims. I only found out as I began to meet other ex-Muslims about what their reality was to, to, to know how good I had it. Uh, but I grew up in a, in a relatively liberal Muslim family, which means that they allowed me to move away for college. They allowed me to sort of be a little bit more independent than uh, Muslims generally are.
0: Where were you? Where were you growing up?
1: I grew up in Texas. I was born in Pakistan and I moved here, um, I think I was seven or eight when we immigrated to the United States. I remember the process of coming here. I remember the shock of coming to this country. Uh, I actually remember the, the first time I saw a woman's, a woman uh, in public whose legs were exposed. It was the, it was a flight attendant when we stopped in, in Europe on our way to America. And I remember the shock Uh, I remember feeling, not really understanding what I was looking at and not really understanding that this was going to be a norm in America.
0: Interesting. So you came from Pakistan when you were, you said eight? Yes. And why did your family leave? Was there any, because it sounds like you had a family that was more liberal than most. Was that at all part of the reason why they left? Or was it just a job change? Or what was it?
1: Well, I think we would be called economic migrants, and I think it was just this general desire for for a better life. However, my my father does tell me that he specifically wanted a better life for his daughters. He had two daughters at the time, and he wanted us to have more opportunities, and he knew he would get that here.
0: So when did you realize that you were a bit of an outlier in terms of your, your family environment with respect to religion?
1: I started... Well, I, I think mo- most atheists would say this, and that's how I, I do identify as an atheist. That that we were always sort of questioning. There were always sort of problems with with religion, and I had them from an early age. But I there was always ways for me to justify religious traditions that I'm, I may have found problematic um, until I got to be a little bit older. I was in my you know mid teens when I really started looking at the religion um, in a really critical way. I started actually reading for myself the Quran and finding that there were problematic problematic verses and things that didn't really make a lot of sense to me. And the more that I looked into it, the, the less that it made sense. Um, and I actually encountered quite a few militant atheists. And this is why uh, even to this day, I don't, I don't think that militant atheism is such a horrible thing because it does push people like me to Looking to their faith, if only for the reasons that you know that, that we want to that we want to defend it, and that is what happened to me. That I, I I knew some atheists, and they were, you know, giving me some some questions, some probing questions, and I wanted to be able to defend my my faith. So that that was one of the one of the reasons that I looked into it with such urgency, because I wanted to be able to defend it, and I found that there really wasn't much there for me to defend, and so um, you know I left the faith.
0: Were these ex-Muslims, or were these Westerners?
1: Oh, these were Westerners. These were, <laughs> these, was, these were people who came from a Christian background and then left, the fa- left their faith um, and then started uh, pointing out the problems within Islam to me. And of course, I was offended. So this is you know something that, that, that the people talk about a lot, that, that Muslims are offended when you talk about their faith in a critical way. And that's, that's to be expected. And I was offended. I remember being offended. Uh, but that offense it doesn't really mean anything and in in the in in the the longer arc of what we're talking about, which is which is truth. And of course people will be offended if you talk about something that hold that they hold so dear. But it did it did push me to look into religion.
0: Well well the offense is really a symptom of not having an argument. You know, I don't get offended if someone claims that my deeply cherished mathematical beliefs or historical beliefs are false, because either they have an argument or they or they don't. And just offense never enters into it. The fact that we're in the territory where someone only has their offense to wield shows that there's a problem intellectually.
1: That's probably a part of it. Uh, at that time when I was first being confronted with the, the problematic verse of the Qur'an, I, I didn't know it was possible. I, it, it, that, sa- that seems ridiculous, and as I'm saying it, it sounds ridiculous, but I remember at that time not knowing.
0: You, you just didn't know what was in the Qur'an at that point when you, were, you first had these conversations. Right.
1: I, I didn't know exactly what was in it, and I didn't know that it was even possible to look at it uh, in anything uh, but, but as, you know, this, this extremely virtuous text I didn't know that there was an interpretation like that out there. So when I first encountered it, it was, it was quite shocking to me.
0: So do you actually ascribe your becoming an atheist to these conversations? Can you point to the conversation that was a tipping point, or is, it, is the process more amorphous than that?
1: It was, uh, it was death by a thousand cuts. Uh, this was definitely the encounter of, of pushback by what I would consider militant atheists. Was a part of it, and this is why I defend militant atheism uh, at today because I know that it, it had something to do with why I left. Uh, but it wasn't the only reason. There were a hundred different reasons that the religion was making less and less sense for me, uh, and I was starting to figure that out on my own. Uh, and pushback from people that were non-Muslims did, you know, d- did influence me into looking at it uh, in a deeper way, with more urgency than I would have otherwise. Uh, but I was finding that there were a lot of problems on my own. There were, you know, historical problems. There were contradictions within the Quran itself. Um, so there were a var- variety of issues with the faith.
0: So, what is the the organization you founded, Ex-Muslims of North America? What what do you guys do? And I mean, it's it's hard to imagine many people listening to this podcast would be confused about this, but still there must be some. But certainly, many people, even most people, in A wider society might not understand why there's a special need for an organization like this. What is so hard about being an ex-Muslim?
1: I think, um, well, like you said, it's not really well understood the extent to which there is Muslim conservatism and the way that Muslim communities in the West uh, practice their faith and and practice their traditions. Um, I know that uh, at the time that I was sort of starting on uh, getting, in, getting involved in this sort of activism that I thought that my experience with Islam was uh, normal. I, I thought that I was a representative of a moderate Muslim. And then when I started to meet other ex-Muslims, I found that this was not the case at all, that I was extremely lucky uh, with my experience with my, with my parents, the fact that I had, been, that, that I had left the faith and you know, I hadn't been threatened by them. I hadn't been abused in any serious way. Uh, and I, I hadn't realized that I was kind of an outlier uh, with that experience. And as I began to, to meet other ex-Muslims, uh, I started to see that there was a huge need for people to just, just to meet others like themselves. And for me, it was kind of a curiosity, just wanting to meet other ex-Muslims. But I knew that for others, that was not the case. So uh, myself and Muhammad Sayyid, we were, we were holding meetups for, for ex-Muslims. Uh, very covertly. There was a lot of like, you know, security protocols involved, Uh, but we were holding these just private gatherings of ex-Muslims. And we started to find that there were people coming from, I mean, it it was outrageous from, from eight hours away, They would be coming eight hours, one way to attend, you know, an hour and a half uh, long meeting, just to, just to be there and to experience the feeling of, of being with people that that are like yourself, who don't demonize you. um, for thinking the way that you do. And so when we, when we started to see that, how big of a, how major of a thing it was for other ex-Muslims, we knew that this was something that needed to be, uh, this needed to be a real thing. We needed to organize, we needed to create an organization around it. We needed to foster communities like the one that we had started to build in DC, all across the United States and Canada, and teach them what we had learned about community building, about security, about privacy, and I don't think, like you said, many Western, even atheists, wouldn't really understand the extent to which ex-Muslims are ostracized and even persecuted with their communities, within their communities, even in the West. To the extent to which that there, that there's anyone who can relate to this, I find that people who come from Mormon backgrounds or just extreme Christian uh, back, sects and uh, Hasidic Jews can can kind of understand where we're coming from and can kind of understand the extremes to which their community can go uh, to defend their faith. So I, I don't think this is something that is understood by the broader community of even atheists. And so XMNA exists so that we can form these communities. And I think the, the thing that we do that is most different than any other kind of atheist community is that we provide uh, ways for them to be anonymous. All All of our all of our meets and our events are completely secret and they're only available to people who are already part of the ex-Muslims of North America communities. And in order to join the community, you you have to go through kind of a a, a screening of sorts. That's what we call it. Um, it's not a science. It's kind of an, an art. But we do the best we can to ensure that the people that are joining are those who uh, understand the rules and regulations that we have and also will keep the privacy and security of others in mind, and to screen as best as we can for people who may be malicious actors who are coming in for, for other reasons.
0: The emphasis on security issues is a sign of how different the situation is for Muslims. And, and you know, I, I have a weird vantage point, or a unique vantage point on this, perhaps, because I, I see so much of what it is to become an atheist from all these different sources, being an ex-Mormon, an ex-Muslim, an ex-member of a cult, an ex-scientologist, I see the exits. And what is unique about Islam is this implicit or very often explicit threat of violence. And so the security concerns that you're describing strike me as fairly unique right. to Islam. And that and that's just still again, it, it amazes me that this is an issue that people are unaware of, or that obscurantists can successfully cover over when this gets debated in public. But it is a controversial point about which it seems to me that there can be really no debate at this point. That the laws around apostasy, the fact that leaving the faith is considered worthy of death—certainly, if you speak against it—you can find that in the Old Testament too you're not tending to see Jews or Christians, however extreme, even reference that edict. It's just there. there are theological reasons why that's the case, there are historical reasons, but I'm not hearing from ultra-Orthodox Jews. I hear from them, and I, and I hear just how difficult it is to be exiled from their community and to lose their marriages and lose their kids and all the rest, but I don't hear that they're worried that their members of their family will come and kill them. And I routinely hear that from ex-Muslims,
1: right? So there's a a, a pretty common uh, a pretty common thing I hear from from ex-Muslims is when when they're describing their family, they'll they'll say, "Well, you know, my parents are my parents are pretty liberal. They, uh, you know, I'm not worried about them killing me." Uh, and, and in any other context, that would be an outrageous thing to say that they're pretty liberal uh, and and in order to justify this feeling, you know that th- you feel like they're not going to they're not going to kill you. But that in itself, I think, should be it should be telling that that our organization needs to exist the way that it does, that that we do need to uh, follow all these bizarre uh, Security and and privacy protocols. We should we really shouldn't have to, but we do, and we do for a reason. And it's interesting to me that 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 is I, I find it to be ignored largely by the mainstream media that 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 this is something that ex-Muslims feel like they need to do. They need to hide. Many apostates are not open about their lack of faith. Um, I see, you know, I know many ex-Muslims privately. You know, I would say that myself and Maybe you know Mohammed Sayed, the the president of XMNA, I, I would I would say that between the two of us, we probably know more ex-Muslims than anybody else in the world. And I see sometimes, you know, I'll see in the media various people that are, you know, participating in charities or in public service organizations and they are represented, you know, they're represented as Muslims. You know, the Mus- this Muslim person is doing, you know, XYZ charitable endeavor, and it's very wonderful. And I will know privately that these are ex Muslims, but they're, they're, they're not able to be open about their, their lack of faith because of the blowback that they will get in their community. So if you're, for example, you're working in a, on a charity, uh, serving people in, in poor Poor women in in Pakistan, you're not going to be open about your lack of faith because if you are open about your lack of faith, you're not going to be able to reach that community at all. You're not going to be able to have any contact with them. So in order for you to continue doing the work that you're doing, you're going to have to lie about your faith. So a lot of a lot of ex-Muslims do do exactly this. And to the extent that we're talking about religious freedom, I know we talk quite a bit um, in the mainstream media, especially liberal media, leftist media. There's a lot of there's there's a lot of conversation about civil liberties of ex-Muslims and religious freedoms, and we talk about them in context with of, of certain traditions like the hijab, uh, to the extent that the most fundamental freedom within the context of a belief system isn't guaranteed, that is to say the, the freedom to leave, the, the freedom to not believe at all, to the extent that that isn't guaranteed, um, in my opinion, we we can't have a conversation about Uh, freedom within that religion at all. Everything is, to some extent, coerced, because the most basic freedom, the freedom to leave, is never guaranteed.
0: And the security concerns are really pernicious, because even if nothing ever happens, right, even if you never become a victim of any kind of violence, the plausible concern about violence is ever-present, and it adds friction to everything you do. Now, I, I encounter this in my personal life because of the issues I, I touch, but it has to be considerably worse for you and for, for anyone who's doing something similar. I, I, I'm very close to Ayan Hirsi Ali. I know what her life is like. I'm close to Majid Nawaz. He, he will, well, I'm sure we'll talk about what he's doing and, and how it may be different from what you're doing. But But still, anyone who's working in this space inherits this massive burden of worrying about what will happen when they become too visible. And it's as simple as not being able to hold a conference, right, or not being able to have physical offices. If you're going to have a an atheist conference, generic atheist conference, or a meetup for ex-Mormons, you never have to think that someone might want to show up and not only annihilate you, but annihilate himself just for the pleasure of killing everyone in attendance. And and this is an all too plausible concern given the world we're living in now. Is there anything more to say about how you handle the security issue that could be useful for ex-Muslims who may want to join your organization to hear, to put their mind at ease about how you handle this? Or is is, is there any more to say about what it's like to be trying to get a movement off the ground under the the burden of of these kinds of unique concerns?
1: What I can say generally is that it, I don't think it's clear from the outside of the the day-to-day struggle that this presents with us running an ex-muslim organization. For example, it it we we get nervous when we do simple things like go to the printer or go to the bank. And we have reason to be nervous. And it there's a sort of paranoia that you know overshadows our you know basic day-to-day operations and it presents a difficulty uh, in that in that it's difficult to do our work enough as it is and then on top of that if you have to worry about uh being discriminated against or possibly being harmed in a severe kind of way by your banker um makes the work that much harder to do uh but from here on out, I'd rather not go into the details of how we protect us.
0: Yeah, yeah. You did an interview with, with Jeffrey Taylor, which was a great read, and uh, you said one thing there that I, I wanted to read into this conversation. You said, if Muslims feel they're being badly treated here in the United States, they can go to Muslim-majority countries. But where can a person like me go? I'm in the safest place I can possibly be, and yet I'm too afraid to tell people where I live. It's tragic for me that there's even a need for our organization. And that really does expose just how unique a position it is to be an ex-Muslim. You are in the safest place in the world to be if you're a Muslim even, really. I mean, we can talk about the problem of anti-Muslim bigotry, but I think it is safe to say that most Muslims are safer in the U.S. than they are in, in most Muslim-majority countries given how unstable and sectarian those tend to be. But for an ex-Muslim in the U.S. or in uh, really anywhere in the West, I guess it gets worse once you go to Western Europe, there is this real concern about not being protected by any community.
1: Right. And just to mirror your language, uh, it's true that, I believe it's true that most Muslims are safer in the West than they would be in a Muslim country but uh, more Muslims are safer in the US than than our ex-Muslims. Ex-Muslims are less safe in the US, ex-Muslims are less safe in Western countries than your average Muslim. And I think that's a perfectly fair fair thing to say, and it should be extremely concerning.
0: Yeah, and obviously you inherit all of the problems of quote Islamophobia in insofar as that is a problem, having your name looking like someone who was born in Pakistan you encounter the same bias or bigotry that any Muslim could be worried about going through an airport or in any other situation where that would become relevant. And yet you have this added concern, which I would argue is, is a far more pressing one, which is you have some percentage of the Muslim community that thinks what you're doing warrants a violent response. And you never know how big that percentage is or how much you're on their radar. And it bears repeating, this is unique to Islam. As badly behaved as Scientologists are when you take a good swing at that hornet's nest, they don't come and kill you. You know, they they can make your life miserable. They can sue you. They can show up at your office with a crazed look in their eyes and video cameras pointed at you 18 hours a day. These are bizarre people who are in a, an especially bizarre cult, but they don't commit murders and they don't commit suicidal acts of terrorism. And so this is, again, anyone who wants to defend Islam against the unique scrutiny that it merits at this moment has to deal with this fact that, as I said before, you have a play like the Book of Mormon that becomes a Broadway hit, and the Mormons take out an advertisement in playbill, in reprisal, right? Their reaction is really adorable. There's not the slightest concern that Trey Parker and Matt Stone will spend the rest of their lives being hunted by religious maniacs. And yet, no one can even imagine staging such a play about Islam at this moment. And, and the, the reasons for that are patently obvious and yet everywhere denied by people who complain about quote islamophobia
1: right i mean i think if if islam could get to where mormonism is today that we would we would be in a much much better place and i think that in itself should be should be telling of how how bad things really are and it's shocking to me that still you know still we've been talking about this for a long time you've been talking about this for a long time ayan POCLE has been talking about this for a long time, that we now we need to be, we finally need to be honest about what's going on. And I don't see much progress in that direction.
0: let's talk about the progress or lack thereof. So it's a one sign of painful lack of progress of late for me has been the way that Linda Sarsour has been championed by liberals and feminists as some kind of icon of women's rights when she, to my eye, is just a straight-up theocrat and bully. How are liberals and feminists getting confused about this?
1: Well, I think the hijab is a, is a good way to illustrate the extent to which liberals are confused about this issue. Because as, as you pointed out, it's, it's, it's ridiculous to see uh, the, the poster, the I think, Shepherd Ferry poster of a woman in a hijab. Uh, as part of the women's march. And you know, I, I understand why why people on the left, why progressives have this tendency. I understand what they are trying to do, which is to stand for the freedom of religion uh, for for Muslims. And this is, you know, this is a, a laudable endeavor. This is something that I support. This is a, a a tendency that I really love about the about the left. I like that they that they instinctively want to protect the little guy. Uh, having said that not everything done in the name of good intentions is necessarily good and not everything, you know, done in the name of good intentions will, will, will help the people that you want to help. And in many cases, it might harm the very principles that it, the, or the very people that, that, that you want to help. And I think this is, especially the hijab in, in context of women's rights is, is a case where we can work in, where we can see this, um, in a very, in a very clear way. Um, And so I, I, I support, I supported the Women's March, you know, I supported, generally speaking, I'm, I'm, women's rights are really close to my heart. And it's really important to me that that feminism is something that becomes uh, universal, that becomes global. So I I support, I support, generally speaking, these kinds of these kinds of initiatives, but I was really disheartened. To see that uh, Linda Sursur was included, and that uh, the hijab was suddenly—it's—it's it's become this totem, you know—it's become this this symbol of of religious freedom, and it's kind of—it's—it's it's pretty perverse, um, it's pretty perverse uh, given the context of what what the hijab actually is, um, and given the religious justification for the hijab, which is, which is dis- distinctly anti-freedom you know it's very coercive it's coercive in large parts of the world it's coercive in western communities today and yes women uh, muslim women should have the right to wear the hijab uh yes they should have the freedom to 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 follow their religion as they see fit but we shouldn't uh we shouldn't herald as as some sort of um as some sort of um Symbol for women's rights as a whole, because that's not what it is. And the symbolism behind the hijab matters. And that's what's shocking to me is that yes, we'll we'll talk about the fact that that Muslim women choose to wear it, and they should have a choice to to wear it, and they should have a choice to be as religious as they want to be. But what does it mean to wear a hijab? Why do Muslim women feel that they need to wear a hijab? You'll hear, um, I think it was Dalia Mogahed that was on that was on the Daily Show a couple of years maybe just a year back, I'm not sure exactly when, but she was talking about the hijab and she referred to it as a means to you know, privatize her sexuality, which is a very interesting way of putting it. Particularly because you know, as I'm listening to it, I, can, I, I remember thinking, oh, wow, that's, that's clever. It's a clever way to phrase uh, the hijab, privatizing my sexuality, because that's something that, uh, she's phrased it in a way where it would be easy to accept by people who are from progressive circles, by educated people, She phrased it in a way that it would just, you know, they would just swallow it whole and accept it, and I think they want to accept it. However, we need to go back to what the religious justification for it is and what what it implies. Even if even if we want to use her phrasing, let's look at it as a way of privatizing your sexuality. It if you consider wearing the hijab, uh, covering up as modesty, as a way of privatizing sexuality, you you justify the viewpoint that women who, who, who don't do this are necessarily people who are publicizing their sexuality. And that if it means something, if you're, saying, if you're signaling something by privatizing your sexuality, then you are also signaling something by publicizing it. And I think that that, that needs to be discussed. That needs to be discussed widely. And it's shocking to me that, that Muslim narratives of what the hijab means are just accepted you know, wholesale. They're just accepted. Um, and not a lot of criticism is given uh, some honest consideration.
0: I think it's good to focus on the hijab because I think many people are confused about just what they should think about it. I think I'm pretty clear about the hijab. I'm a little confused, frankly, about the niqab and the burqa, I think. So it's just walk me through this. So with, this is what I think about the hijab. I think that, as you said, that the first thing to be honest about is that most women who wear the hijab the world over are not doing it voluntarily. And even if you could stand them up and ask them and they would say, yes, they want to live this way, it can't be construed as a voluntary choice given the cultural context in which they're living, given the the penalties for not wearing it, given how everyone in their life would think about them if they chose not to wear it this is a choice against a a background of almost total coercion. And then you have the rare case in the West of someone who her sophomore year at Brandeis can decide, well, you know, maybe I want to wear the hijab. And it's a truly free choice. Now, I agree with you that any woman should be free to make that choice. They should just be honest about how different a choice that is than the pseudo-choice that's being made every day by, by a woman or a girl in Saudi Arabia or any other theocracy. So people should be free to dress in that way, and we should also be honest that this is an, it's an ideological display, right? So when someone wears the hijab, they're telling me something about what they believe to be true, and there's no burden on me not to pay attention to that. I can notice that their external choice as an indicator of their their internal worldview, right? And worldviews matter, right? People, What people believe and declare is important to them matters. So it's a conversation. You are starting a conversation with the world when you decide to put on a hijab. And one of the things you're saying, you know, privatizing your sexuality is, is one way of putting it, but you seem to also be conceding, as is explicitly stated within the doctrine of Islam that the onus is upon the woman to conceal herself as a way of protecting men from their lust. It's not that the onus is not on the men not to be boorish monsters who are just groping any woman in sight who's not sufficiently covered. The onus is on on women to be sufficiently modest. Even if you're making a free choice in the West and Dalia Mogahed is your guru, you're still, this is an anti-feminist concept of where the blame for social awkwardness and lust gets placed.
1: Every choice, uh, even, if it, even if there is a choice that is freely made by a woman, uh, it doesn't necessarily make it a feminist choice. And in the context of the hijab, even if Dalia or, or Linda Sarsour. Uh, have freely made the choices that they've made that doesn't make them feminist choices they can be anti-feminist they can be anti-women they can be anti-women's rights and that needs to be discussed and that needs to be talked about to add on to what you were saying well, when there's this burden of um sexual purity that's placed on placed on women uh, it's kind of a you know it really is something that I would I would call a rape culture of sorts where women that ha- that that are subject to sexual assault uh, bear the blame if they are women who you know don't cover themselves in an islamically prescribed way, and this is something that is pervasive in the Muslim world. the idea that uh, a woman who shows her body, who is you know uh, even walks in, in a certain way or speaks in a certain way, uh, they are to blame for for male assaults against them, and you can see reflections of this in in the ways that Muslim men treat non-muslim women I mean I know there's a the sexual assaults that happened in, in Germany on New Year's Eve, it wasn't something that was very surprising to, to me and to many people from the, from the Muslim world. It's not entirely surprising because there is a, a dehumanization of women who don't cover themselves in the way that, you know, Islamic women are supposed to cover themselves. It seems to be a signal, a free pass to do with those women as, as you will, because they do not have the same kind of dignities that women who are covered up have.
0: So let's move on to uh, even more aggressive covering. So the the niqab, wherein only the eyes are exposed, and less people are familiar with that, I think, than the burqa, which is what you tend to see in Afghanistan, where, where everything is covered and you just have this kind of mesh for the woman to see out of. There, I feel like my sympathies change a little bit because there's something so, in the current climate, it's so provocative, but also. I think, unsafe and uncommunicative about covering the face. You don't know who anyone is. You don't get any of the social cues that are actually important for understanding whether you're safe around a person. The person who's having this imposed on them is being deprived of almost everything that's good in the world uh, in terms of interacting with other human beings. What's your feeling about whether or not something like, take the, the French approach to, you know, banning the niqab in public. How do you feel about that? Because again, I, I, following what we just said about the hijab, my bias is certainly to let people dress however they want, but there is something really terrible about covering the face in public, and I don't, I don't actually know what we should do about it.
1: Well, I agree. It's that, that it's unsettling in the way that just a head that the face veil is unsettling in the way that a head covering is not, but I don't think that we should change our approach to it. Um, I think any time that any anytime that a facial covering of any kind, a mask you know be that be a party mask or a ski mask, wouldn't be allowed, um, neither should uh, you know a face veil religious face covering be allowed but aside from that, yes, it is disturbing uh, yes it is yes, it does speak to uh, the this um distance that Muslim women are sometimes you know sometimes forced uh, to 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 have with the world around them, but that doesn't mean that uh, that taking an action like banning it would be helpful in my opinion it isn't I think uh, what we do need to grapple with is that many many Muslim women buy into the ideology that is, that is given to them. Many don't, but many do. That, that's why you have Lundas Resorts, that's why you have Dali Moga heads, is that there are women who, who buy it and they actually believe that they are being empowered uh, by, by Islamic um, traditions. And so there are women who willingly putting on, put it on or think that they are willingly putting it on and they feel empowered by it because uh, they are fed a certain kind of worldview um, and forcing them to take it off would not, uh, you know, would not win us any favors from those women, and if anything, it might, you know, it might, it might um, turn them into people that would uh, want to wear the hijab, that would want to wear religious garb as a political protest. And increasingly, I see the hijab and uh, just various kinds of uh, religious garb as a form of political post- protest. And I don't think we should encourage uh, it being it being. Turned into something like that because it becomes more powerful in that way, and the religious the the harm that the religion itself perpetuates because of the because of the hijab gets a brushed to the side
0: that's interesting because I think the rationale for the French policy uh, or at least the the one rationale that makes sense to me is that if you ban these things in public, what you're doing is you're creating a space where all the people who are being coerced into wearing these religious symbols are free because of the protection of the state not to wear them they're no longer obliged to do what their their family insists that they do because it's illegal to do it and and so you've you've created this context in which girls and women can be free in a way that they they wouldn't be if you just let everyone decide what they should wear but it sounds like you think that that on balance, you'll actually just alienate more people than you will liberate by doing that.
1: So to, to, to follow up on what you said, which was that perhaps it would free the women that are, that are truly coerced. Let's say a certain percentage of women are coerced to wear a certain kind of religious garb in public. In the context of, for example, the, what, what the French were doing, I spoke out against, um, I, I don't know, the, the, the burkini, I think it was called, the Islamic uh, swimwear, that uh, some French towns were, were, were trying to were trying to ban. And I spoke out against that ban.
0: That seemed like good sun-shielding practices from my point of view. <laughs> this is the other thing you brought up, is that there are other ways to cover your face that we can't make illegal. So you're, if you're going to make Halloween masks and ski masks illegal because they're so similar to niqabs, if you have someone who's super sun-sensitive who, who essentially is showing up in the equivalent of a bikini you can't suddenly make that illegal so it's it's a very weird thing to try to legislate
1: right and you don't you don't really you don't necessarily protect the women who are being coerced into wearing these things for, for in the context of a burkini uh, so, so there are certain Muslim women who let's assume are coerced into wearing religious gear and um because they're' able to wear a burkini they have a little bit of freedom they're allowed to go to the beach and they're allowed to experience you know you know, feel the sand on their, on their feet and feel the water and, and, and get to participate in this public activity in a way that they probably would not be able to participate in if the burkini was banned. So, in the context of the most coerced women, I don't know if we're necessarily going to protect them because I don't know if the reaction of the most extreme religious families would be to say, well, if the state has banned a burkini, that means that you're allowed to wear a bikini to, or, or shorts or whatever it is. To the beach. I I fear that the reaction might be more often than that to say, well, you're not allowed to go to the beach and maybe we're taking you back home.
0: It's a difficult one. And I don't know if legislation is too blunt a a tool for this, but I I can imagine, for instance, if if I'm sitting on an airplane and somebody gets on with a ski mask or a Halloween mask and refuses to take it off or I see someone passing through security at the airport with a ski mask or Halloween mask on, I would expect that person to be stopped and to not be able to fly unless they took it off. You know, and then you could imagine that there's an obvious exception if they have a reason, if they have some medical reason why they have to wear a mask, or, you know, they have have a burn on their face, or something that explains it, well, then fine. But I think there are many public spaces where someone is in charge of legislating certain norms even if there are not laws against these things and yes yeah, it's like you can't show up to a restaurant you know without wearing pants right probably there is some kind of law against it but it's at the discretion of of anyone who has control of a of a public space to deny access to people who are violating certain norms and i think we just have to be honest about what it means to be wearing a niqab or a burqa at this moment in human history in the West, you know, in an airport. You are advertising a worldview, which is the worldview we care about from the point of view of of being people who want to prevent suicide bombings on airplanes, to take the, the narrow case. So obviously you're going to draw more scrutiny. Obviously we can't see what's underneath this covering unless unless we put you in a an X-ray scanner, rather than a than a metal detector, it poses a, a security concern both physically and ideologically. I mean, you've, again, you've announced your your worldview in a way that you otherwise wouldn't if you weren't wearing this thing. It is analogous to you know if we had problems with a cult of of neo-Nazis that was killing people or threatening to kill people in in virtually every city on earth, it would matter if someone showed up at the airport with swastikas tattooed on his face or you know wearing proudly wearing you know symbols of the ss on his jacket i mean that's, this person is saying pay attention to me i'm a security problem or at least a potential one it never strikes me as trivial that someone is wearing a niqab or that or that in particular the man who is chaperoning her is the sort of man who wants his wife or sister, to wear in a niqab,
1: Right, but I don't know if it's, I think we can make certain, I think, I think you're right to say that we can assume certain things, um, but I don't know if we can assume them universally. Uh, in the context specifically of a woman in an niqab, we, we can't assume that she's being coerced, we can't assume that she's not being coerced, we can't, uh, we, we don't actually know what her, where her true beliefs lie because of the specific context of this religion and i don't know if it's helpful to make those um make those assumptions
0: i agree you can't so but the balance has to swing one way or the other and i think the french assumption that you'll be helping people i mean so i guess i mean the beach is an interesting case because i can easily see it going the way you fear that these are women who just will not be let out of the house given that there's no option for them to be fully covered at the beach but when you think of something like like a school right or a place of employment. It just feels like a ban on covering the face in those contexts. Again, it's like, whether this is the law or whether it's just every place of business is free to have their own policy, I don't know. But it's just, I can't imagine hiring someone for some kind of public facing job where they insist on their right to wear a niqab. Right, like a bank teller, you're 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 a bank teller and you're wearing a niqab, or you're a nurse in a hospital, but you're going to wear a niqab as you visit patients. I think you you have to be free not to hire those people who insist that they wear a niqab in those contexts.
1: Well, I think in the, in the to the extent that it gets in the way of your job job duties, and you can make an argument that it would do that in the context of a of a nurse. Um, I, I remember reading something about, it's tangentially related, but I remember reading something about a female eye doctor in, uh, in ISIS-controlled territory who was no longer allowed to practice unless she had on uh, a covering. And she complained that she wasn't, she wasn't able to see and she needed to do these complex procedures with with other people's eyes, women's eyes, and she wasn't able to see herself properly enough to be able to operate in the way that she needed to operate. So obviously it gets in the way of, of job duties. Um, even you can, you can, you can make the argument. I think that there are certain social obligations, sort of uh, social aspects of a job that require someone to show their face, but it's different that because there are different um, jobs would require that. And some jobs would require that and some jobs would not. And on the whole, I know that from a, from a perspective of an act- activist, The more constraints we place on religious freedom, in Muslim religious freedom, the harder it gets for someone like me to argue in favor of Western values and uh, for Enlightenment values. It's difficult for me to say that, you know, in the West, they allow freedom. In the West, women can dress according to their conscience, whatever it may be, when there are clear examples of all these ways in which that is not at all the case. So while I don't want religious to be religions to be accommodated in any special way, um, I also wouldn't want them to be persecuted in any in any particular way.
0: Yeah. Well, again, I'm just sort of thinking out loud, but I, I want to push on this intuition a little bit more because you know if I'm hiring, let's let's take a job where it really doesn't matter. You know, I'm I'm hiring someone to be a remote assistant. Right. I I, I don't even have to see this person. Right. This person's just going to be working for me doing online tasks, and I don't have to see her, and she doesn't have to see anyone else on my behalf, but I have to interact with another human mind. And, you know, it seems to me that I'm under no burden to hire a neo-Nazi for that job, right? And and when someone says, well, listen, you know, I really want to work for you, but I happen to be a neo-Nazi, and I think that it would be a good thing if we just rounded up all the Jews and blacks and killed them. That's disqualifying. It's it's an idea that is disqualifying. But this person could argue, well, this actually doesn't prevent them from performing their duties perfectly. I mean, this is a job where I just need digital papers shuffled. They don't have to write articles for me and tell the world what I believe. So, you know, would I be discriminating against a neo-Nazi by not wanting to have anything to do with them in my life? Yeah, I would be, but I don't see a problem with that. I feel the same way about a sufficiently doctrinaire view of any religion, really, but especially Islam given that the connection to certain norms around violence. What percentage of people who are wearing a niqab or whose husbands want them to think that, you know, infidels are fit only for the fires of hell and that apostates should be killed? I'm willing to bet it's a very high percentage. Maybe not everyone, but it's damn high. We're now in the territory of being able to really know what people think based on how they're dressing. And so I feel like again, this you know technically it would be illegal to not hire someone based on their religion, I guess. But it just seems like I feel like we need to be clear across the board and again, it's hard to know how this gets realized in the public sphere but I think we just need to be clear that certain ideas are so anathema to civil society that calling them religious and, and putting them under the, the the rubric of religious freedom doesn't take the the stink off of them and it certainly doesn't remove the danger of having any significant number of people subscribe to these ideas
1: My instinct would be to say that even even if I knew that someone was to have that someone has horrible views, so long as it doesn't get in way into their jobs. I don't see the great need to not. I mean, of course, I wouldn't want to necessarily work in, with that person, uh, but I think the norm in society should not be to should, should not be to place any values on people's uh, private beliefs, whatever they may be. Uh, and the reason I say this is because I don't know exactly where people would draw the line. I don't know. There are, for example, um, ex-Muslims. Who started to be? I know, I I know ex-Muslims who started to be a little bit more open about their lack of faith and started to speak out and have videos and and start to do talks and uh and later went back into the closet. And the reason that they did go back into the closet is because their employer found their uh, views distasteful and they found them uh, badly reflecting on the company. And of course, this is a norm in America, uh, but. In my opinion, it shouldn't be because people like him, as well as, I mean, neo-Nazis aren't the only people who will be affected by this. It will be up to the employers as to what they consider distasteful or even what they consider controversial. And you will have private citizens who, in, the, you know, in, their, in their private time, are participating, however they are, in whatever activism uh, or ideology that they wish, who are then going to be coerced into being more silent.
0: Well, I guess this is just a place where our intuitions part company here. I, I think I, I have a a more libertarian intuition about how we resolve these issues going forward. I mean, I, I certainly acknowledge that there is a time in the, in the life of any society where you need to make it illegal to discriminate against people for various things, but I, I think there's a there's a further point, and I, and I I certainly hope we've reached it where. If you are discriminating against the wrong people, you will just pay the price for that, right? So if you are an organization that won't hire any atheists, um, well, then there will be a cost to that. You'll be reliably selecting against some of the most intelligent, well-educated people in our society. People will, if it becomes public knowledge that you do this, well, then people will begin treating your business a certain way. People can boycott you. People can write nasty articles about you. I feel like at a certain point, laws against discrimination become too coarse a filter. And what we really want is to know what people think. And we we want to know how they want to live. And when Chick-fil-A tells the world that they want gay marriage to be illegal, well, then the world can decide how it wants to respond. Now, unfortunately, and this, this cuts against what I just said, we live in a society where it seems that, that most people decided to line up and buy more of their sandwiches because they supported this principled theocratic stand. But I feel like on many of these questions, we have gotten over the hump. And if you are going to discriminate against gays or Jews or atheists or African-Americans, or if that is your the way you want to live, and I'm speaking now of you know North America, There'll be a lot of pain meted out to you, which is best meted out by social attitudes running against you. But again, that's, I think, we're sort of in coin toss territory about whether our society is, is ready for that. It's a difficult problem because I just think it's, I mean, I can't imagine being forced to hire someone who was a true Wahhabi style believer. How could that conceivably work?
1: Oh, I, I and I agree. I agree that they are coarse. The the discrimination laws and the categories of protected classes we have—they are coarse. And in in there are certain aspects in which there's certain ways in which they don't work at all. And I'm again just going to throw ex-Muslims as an example. Um, what if ex-Muslims of North America chooses not to hire Muslims, not just Wahhabi Muslim, but any Muslim, anybody who. Uh, even identifies with the label Muslim, but we choose not to hire them. Um, I think that you know there are some some people that would say that this is a form of discrimination because the law is coarse, but that doesn't mean I think that my intuition still says that it is necessary um, because you can have a minority that is so small, uh, where uh, is so small and so ignored that the broader social you know uh, the social means we have of corrupting such a problem are not going to be enough. And again, ex-Muslims can also be an example for, for this side of the debate as well, where uh, our discrimination isn't something that is visible to, to the vast majority of Americans. Um, and many people have a political interest in covering up the, the particular persecution that we face. And you know, I remember the, the, the gay cake thing that was just on the news media, it was on every you know, it was on every, every channel that, that I paid attention to. And it was because this was a, a big issue that there were, there was a small, I think it was a mom and pop company that, that didn't want to make a gay cake because it, they disagreed with their, with, with their religious prescriptions. But there are Muslims who will do the same to us. Um, and there are far more of them than there are of us. And there's not many places that we can go. Um, and to the extent that you have extremely small minorities who don't have much power, um, m- much of a voice on social media or, or, or any of these platforms to make their case known, uh, they're going to get trampled.
0: This is, brings me to another issue, which is really of a piece with the view I was just advocating a moment ago. How can we deal with the confusion about Islam and the, the obscurantism about it by Muslim apologists. How can we be honest about the unique problems in the Muslim community, problems of intolerance of free speech and women's rights and the unique connection between specific doctrines within Islam and you know, global jihadism without seeming to be pushing bigotry of any kind or, or intolerance or an alt-right political agenda?
1: Well, what's clear to me is that there, it, the answer to that is not what I, would, what I would want it to be, which is that my initial understanding of active when I first got into activism, my, my thought was that all we needed to do was be more honest and just focus on facts and nothing else. And that would be enough to get uh, people who are progressives uh, to pay attention to this issue and to stop being obscurant when it comes to this issue. But I I haven't found that to be the case. The way that I approach it now is I talk about the harms of not being honest about the issue, about how much, what we stand to lose when we conflate Islam and Muslims. And to the extent that I think that there are people on the left and there there are progressives who are motivated by a desire to protect Muslims, uh, they should be aware of what it is exactly that they're risking, of the harms on the other side that are likely to come about if we are not honest about this issue.
0: So are you finding that you have I'm imagining I'm just kind of mapping a- Ayan's case onto yours. There are probably some differences there, but you know, she is a famous ex-Muslim and um, has reaped a, a whirlwind of abuse because of that. And, and and has found that her natural allies in the media and in you know, think tanks and other institutions have been right-wing, given the liberal confusion about just what you said, the difference between protecting a vulnerable minority and caring about political equality for people, on the one hand, and speaking honestly about Islam as a set of doctrines. Are you finding that you have allies on the right disproportionately, or have you just at this point discovered that because you're an explicitly atheist group, they're not even allies? You're not Muslims who have converted to Christianity. You are you are atheists, which is, I would imagine, disproportionately a problem on the right. So how, how are you finding yourself treated by non-Muslims across the political spectrum? And how has the election of Trump affected things? Uh,
1: well, I would agree with... My case has been similar to Ayon's in the sense that I have found more of a welcome in right-wing circles. Um, to go back to the the cake uh, controversy, uh, ex-Muslims of North America was having our we were having our third anniversary, and we we requested that a a, a large chain in our area make a bake ba- a cake for us. And um, on it, we, we requested that there would be our logo and our name, ex-Muslims of North America, and then the text congratulations on three years. And the bakery refused to, refused to make the cake. And we had uh, somebody from F- F- Freedom from Religion Foundation write a letter and send it to, send it to headquarters of that company. And in, uh, in the end, the issue was resolved. But while the controversy was going on, uh, the coverage was, almost exclusively uh, right-wing outlets. I, I actually think there was only like maybe one or two atheist outlets that covered it and everybody else was, was right-wing uh, that actually paid attention to that controversy. So it, I think that it is true that, that the right-wing, the people on the right in general uh, pays more attention to this issue. They may be more honest than, than the left about what the problem is, but I do not think that they're honest at the end, and they're not honest about about the cause. So I've noticed, for example, when I discuss uh, the hijab uh, with conservatives and with, with people on the left, uh, I'll find that with conservatives, they'll they'll agree with me that the hijab is a is a barbaric practice. It's something that is anti woman, um, but their reasoning tends to go back to b- back to the idea that that it is a Muslim practice and the underlying. Uh, the underlying problem that I have with hijab isn't just that, it's a, it's, it, that it displays itself in such a way, but that it is justified by the idea that, that women's bodies are a source of sin and that women have a duty to cover their own bodies. And then there's this whole doctrine of, of modesty and of sexual purity. But there are many on, on the right, particularly on the religious right, that agree with some of those underlying principles, and they they may not be as intense about it as uh, as Muslims are, but they agree with that that underlying principle because they do have. I mean, it's an Abrahamic faith, so they they share some of those um, some of those tendencies. And so, to the extent that I think that they're being honest, they're being honest that there is a particular issue. With, with Islam, that, that the Western, Western civilization faces. But when we go down to the core of why there is an issue, of, of, of why Islam poses a threat, I don't know if, if people on the right, particularly people who are reli- on the religious right, will be honest about the issue.
0: So, how do you view this concept of Islamophobia? How do you deal with the word when it comes up? And again, how has Trump? Changed anything if his ascendancy has at all
1: Trump, I think has made things um, difficult in a way that I, I find hard to articulate. Um, I was afraid that he would win. I thought that he had a chance uh, right from the beginning um, i've been I've been noticing you know some of the some of the the trends that you spoke of around the time when he was elected uh that I thought many in the left were ignoring. And I predicted that he wouldn't be somebody who's good for this conversation. And I think that my prediction has been, has been true. I haven't seen him uh, make any, any motions that are moving us forward in this conversation other than to, to call it for what it is. But honesty, if we're going to have it, this is just partial honesty and it's only step one. And just because somebody's able to name it doesn't mean that they're able to go anywhere else with it. And I think Donald Trump has shown the many ways that he isn't able to go anywhere with it. I mean, he went to Saudi Arabia just last week, I think, and, and, and I don't recall him saying anything about the human rights abuses.
0: No, no, he didn't.
1: In Saudi, I don't, I don't recall him saying anything at all. And I wouldn't have expected him to. I didn't, you know, th- this, to me, it seems like there's, there's too many uh, people like him who are all too happy to use Islam and the threat of Islam as a cudgel against against uh, their left-wing opponents, uh, but they're not, we- they're, not, they're not actually caring about the roots of the issues and they're not really, they're not really uh, being truthful when they say that they will, they will address the very heart of it. I think Donald Trump has empowered people, uh, apologists for Islam, because I think the left has taken this very reactionary stance and it has to be called reactionary because that's exactly what it is. It's just a reaction to the power that they now see in the right wing uh, to defend Islam more fervently than they would have ever defended it before. And I, I've noticed that there are people who were somewhat on the edge, people who were familiar with the issues that ex-Muslims faced, and they were willing to speak about it here and there, who are now uh, f- feeling pressured to pick a, ch- pick a side. And they have picked a side. And the side that they've picked is, let's not talk about it right now. Now is not the time to talk about it. So uh, the election of Donald Trump, uh, on the whole, I think has been just disastrous for, for this conversation.
0: Yeah, no, I noticed the same thing. It's a swing into identity politics as really the only remedy for Trump. You have to put as much distance between yourself and him and the alt right, and and the way Democrats and liberals are finding to do that is to just again grab Linda Sarsour's hijab tails and swing into oblivion. It's a real problem because it is making it harder to talk about this, but frankly, I was surprised at the line that Trump took with the Saudis because he you know in the election, he was very clear on this point there I think he has at least three or four tweets, his record as an intellect is almost entirely um a matter of what he has tweeted, but he had at least three or four tweets that are just you know as uncompromising as you would want someone on the right wing to be about Saudi Arabia, talking about how women are treated and how they're a source of terrorism and basically holding them to account for the spread of the Wahhabi worldview. And he went after Hillary for for taking their money. But then when he got there, he only spoke negatively about Iran, as though Iran were the, the great engine of Sunni violence we see throughout the world. It was strange, and I, I, don't, I don't quite know why it isn't perceived by his defenders as a loss of nerve. He talked a good game while running for the presidency, and then once he got to the Saudis, he literally kissed the ring and bowed his head. It seemed kind of pathetic. The only, The only thing that, that he did, or really Melania did, which was new and, and commendable, was not wear a veil herself as so many Representatives of the U.S. government had in the past, and that was clearly a, a bit of progress. But I found that very strange.
1: I, I wasn't particularly surprised by it. I mean, he's been a hypocrite on a dozen issues and other issues in the past, and you can just people—it's become this, this, this ongoing joke that you use. You reference some of Donald's tweets that that you know that that he sent out years ago um, as a retort against what he's doing now. Uh, So I don't, uh, you know, to the extent that I think this man stands for anything, uh, I don't have any hope in him because I don't think I don't think he has any sort of principles. Um, And I don't think his followers have have many principles. And I think, you know, I suspect that even if they were he he was to change his stance on 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 Islam, that I think that many of them, the people that are still with him after all this, the people that are still with him would follow him there as well. Um, And I think that's very, that's something that's very frightening to me, where I see this happening on both sides of the debate, debate, but particularly on the right, where there doesn't seem to be any kind of, there's no sense of what, you know, what it means to be a conservative, what conservative principles are anymore. It's just this, this ego and you follow him wherever he goes. And I'm seeing that the two parties use the issue of Islam just as a just as a political tool, just as a volley that they that they pass back and forth in order to score points against against one another. And and both of them move further and further away from any anything remotely resembling principles on the, this area. You talked to me, you, you, you mentioned Islamophobia uh, and the problems that I have w- with this with this word are the same that, that you've mentioned, that you've articulated Really well uh, multiple times, and that many others have as well, which is that it conflates Islam and Muslims. Um, I think it does something that is very dangerous, particularly for Muslims. Uh, that uh as we are becoming more aware of the specific problems in Islam, of the Islamic doctrine, and as uh, terrorists and extremists around the world claim the banner of Islam and claim that they're speaking on behalf of of all Muslims, and this is what Islam truly is. So long as there's a conflation between Islam and Muslims, Muslims here are going to be, uh, I think, in, in in further trouble, in further danger of anti-Muslim bigotry if people are not able to distinguish between them and their faith. I was reading; I think it was a, I think it was a Brookings poll that showed that uh, Americans did have that, that Americans did make a distinction. Between between Islam and, and Muslims, and what what it would have found was that Americans had a more negative view of Islam than they did have of Muslims, uh, which I think is a which I think is a great tendency. You know, it shows that uh, Americans are are less willing to to feel negatively about a group of people, and they're they they feel more free to do it about an ideology. And what we need to do, we need to is is that we need to crystallize this distinction. We need to separate them as much as possible, and the reason is is to protect to protect Muslims from facing any kind of backlash that is taken in the name of their faith by others.
0: Well, I completely agree with that, obviously. It's just, if you can't make that basic distinction between people and ideas, ideas that can be subscribed to to one or another degree by people, and people can change their attitudes with respect to those ideas overnight, you just can't even begin to have an honest or productive conversation about about this issue. It's just that is the one lever which you have to have in hand to start any kind of rational process going. And it's the one thing that Muslim obscurantists and apologists and, you know, people who represent groups like CARE, the Council of American Islamic Relations, seem to want to obscure at any cost. I mean, it's just, that is, that is the thing that they don't want you to understand about this situation, that Islam is a set of ideas, some of which are obviously pernicious and divisive in principle and that need to be criticized. And Muslims are just people, and they're not people necessarily who have any particular ethnic background, given that you can easily convert to or away from this set of doctrines. It's true that most people from certain Middle Eastern countries are Muslim, but the usual approach to identity politics doesn't really fit here and it's people seem to be using identity politics in a very cynical way to advance what can only be called the interests of a kind of stealth theocracy
1: well, i think that what what you mentioned this conflation this very cynical conflation is it is in in many ways it's it's dehumanizing to Muslims. You know, it, it, it paints them, as you said, as a, as an inherently religious people. And like, as if it's, as if it's a, it's a feature in the way race is a feature, skin color or any kind of physical attribute. And, and it's not, it's not something that you're, you're born into believing. It's just some, it's something you're taught to believe. It's something that becomes a part of your life, but it it is, you are able to shed it and ex-Muslims are proof that this is something that is that is possible, even in the most extreme circumstances.
0: Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about one extreme circumstance, which is becoming increasingly expected, even in the West. Let's talk about the, the recent Manchester bombing. We now have this pervasive threat of terrorism, and this is the latest instance now in the aftermath of something like this we hear the predictable things we hear that the bomber was just evil right and the implication being that evil people will do evil things anyway they don't need religion to do that or we will hear that he they're insane which is often assumed in this context and again that takes the onus off of islam entirely and then we we have people saying things like this person no more represented islam than Anders Breivik represented Christianity. Say, what do you do with that?
1: I think uh, this falls in line with uh, a broader problem with the way that we in the West look at Islam, which is that I think Western Christians and just Western religions as a whole have sort of moved away from from the ideological, you know, foundations of of their faith and. There are many people who are born into those understandings and they cannot uh, they cannot put put themselves in the shoes of somebody who is a true believer. Uh, So to the extent that it represents uh, that terrorists are are evil people, I think this this is something that is that makes conversation so difficult, because I I know for a fact uh, that conservative Muslims and religious Muslims believe, truly believe that what they're doing is, is good for the world, is good for their children. I mean, there's this idea that if, if a Muslim, you know, if a Muslim father forces his daughter to cover up, you know, beats her, if he finds that she is dating somebody, you know, uh, secretly, there's this idea that he is a bad father, that he is a bad man. But from a religious context, uh, he isn't, not not, ne- not necessarily. Uh, this could be a, somebody who really wants what's best for their child and who sincerely believes that if uh his 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 female child was to was to lose her her virginity that that she would be doomed into something that is doomed to into an eternity of of suffering and of course you don't want that as as a father for for your child so even good people are of course uh pushed into doing what we would call evil things so i think this is such a a facile understanding of, of what religious conservatism looks like. And I think a lot of that applies to extremism as well. I don't think that it's fair to call them evil, you know, evil as a, even as a evil in in an abstract sense, because certainly they think they're doing a good for the world. And certainly from the way that they are, uh, that they understand the reality of the universe, they, they believe that they are doing something good. They believe that they are part of a grander arc that will bring the world to to an image closer to to what God desires. The more concerning thing, I think for me, uh, when we start to look at just extremism and then closely related uh, uh, just fundamentalism or conservatism as something that is evil, we damn a large, the the vast majority of of Muslims. So if we consider the idea that apostates should be killed um, and anyone who holds it to be evil, if we think of the idea that, that homosexuals should be, should be persecuted as something that is held only by evil people, then we are, we are saying by extension that the vast majority of the Muslim world is filled with evil people.
0: What are your views on immigration now, and I guess in particular in Europe, given what we've been talking about?
1: Um, it's difficult for me, I guess, to, to talk about what's, what's happening in Europe, particularly because you know, as you know, it's it's not easy to get a a clear understanding of exactly what it is what what is going on. Um, There's just two exactly polar uh, opposite views of what's of what's happening of the effects that re- refugees and migrants are having on society, and it's hard to make sense of of what's going on. And I think our you know my my general tendency, which is to land somewhere in the middle uh, of those two polar opposites, is not going to be the more uh, something that ends up being more accurate as far as what it appears Sweden is doing and and Germany in particular are doing uh, with with letting in just a vast majority of migrants I think that the viewpoint that this is something that is going to play out in a pretty devastating way for for Europe that it may mean the loss of certain countries in the sense that they will change so dramatically demographically that they are not, you know, Germany will not be Germany as we, as we know it today. I think that those fears are not unfounded. And I think that to let in so many, so many people with no clear plan of how to integrate them, um, perhaps not even a desire to integrate them is incredibly reckless. Um, And it does a disservice even to the people that are coming in. I mean, they're, they're the best thing that happened to me. And I mean, I'm an immigrant to the United States, but the best thing that—and I'm an economic immigrant—but the best thing that happened to me was not just that I live a slightly more comfortable, comfortable lifestyle. It's that uh, I was granted the freedom to to live life the way that I wanted to live it. I was given protection from the state to be able to to be able to do that. That I was able to encounter ideas that changed um, my feelings on you know uh, on on my on my role as a woman. On my role in in the in the universe, to me that's the best that's the best thing that the West has to offer. But if these immigrants are going to go in and they're going to make a little Pakistan in in Germany or a little Afghanistan, then the people within them they're not going to experience these social freedoms and liberties that you would experience if you were a more immersed uh, immigrant.
0: That's a great point. It's a really hard problem to talk about, and it's it's just getting harder because. It would be hard to argue, probably impossible to argue, that the status quo is optimal, that what is happening now is exactly what everyone should want. Given the failures, uh, the obvious failures of assimilation thus far, and given just the implications of the, the floodgates opening, it's hard to see that this is good for Europe, and as you point out, good for the people who are immigrating for entirely the right reasons. This has to be, at a minimum, thought through better than it has been. What's your view about the prospect of reforming Islam and creating a a tradition of of secularism along the lines that Majid Nawaz is attempting, versus what you spend, it seems, most, if not all, of your, your time emphasizing, which is undermining the religion itself and effectively is spreading atheism or at least providing a a rationale for dropping religion entirely. How do you view those the difference between those two projects and, and do you think that only the latter is is ultimately viable or or do you think there's a, a place for both?
1: To begin with, I I support the efforts of Reformist Muslims, I, I support, you know, Majid Nawaz. I, I think what he's doing is is incredibly brave, um, and I think he's doing it for for all the right reasons. And I support people like him who are who are, you know, pursuing, you know, the advancements of society using those means. But I disagree with the project altogether. I think it is not viable. I think it is not uh, intellectually sustainable. And I think that that, needs to be, that that needs to be something that we need to grapple with. Like for example, I think there is, uh, f- from a reformist perspective, there is this idea that, that Muslims are just sitting there on, on some sort of continuum. You know, you have uh, liberal Muslims on one end and conservative Muslims on the other, and you can move conservative Muslims along that continuum one reinterpretation at a time. You know, you can give them enough, just enough, just enough reasons and groundings, uh, to allow them to just move, move along that continuum and hopefully they'll end up, uh, being liberal Muslims. But this, um, I think this doesn't take into account, uh, the one, the constraints of the faith itself. And many people have brought them up. So I don't think I need to go over that, that, that there's, you know, there's only a, a certain extent to which that we can really, that we can really reinterpret the faith, you know, certain, certain parts of the Quran, uh, have more room for interpretation. You can be a little bit more flexible with how you're wanting to look at it, and certain ones don't. And you're really tying yourself down to your ability to be able to do that. To be your ability to be able to tie yourself, you know, into the shape of a pretzel in order to get to um, a liberal understanding. I think that's going to be very difficult. It's going to be it's going to be hard to play out. Um, and I think that model of a continuum where you just sort of where Muslims can just sort of abandon aspects of their faith. As if they were just mere, just mere traditions, just just as if they were just cultural artifacts and 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 uh, something that they felt close to but weren't tied down to. I think that understanding is is incorrect. Um, I think for the vast majority, the vast majority of Muslims don't don't see it in in that way. Don't see a continuum with liberal and conservatism. I think they approach their faith as a model for reality. I mean, they literally believe. In in the in what it's telling them, and they believe that it is more true than any other model for for reality that we can that we can possibly attain in this world. Um, I was listening to just the other day. I was listening to a interview of Richard Dawkins by Mehdi Hassan, who's a who's a ger- British journalist. I think he now he's in America, but he's this you know he's this intelligent guy. He's well spoken, uh, very well spoken. Good with rhetoric, and he's able to articulate his beliefs uh, in a in a in a way that where you can tell that he is more cosmopolitan than than the average Muslim. And in that in that conversation with Richard Dawkins, uh, Madi confessed that he that he did believe in the the miracles of Islam, which is that he did believe that Muhammad flew to heaven on a on a winged horse. Uh, that it was literally a truth and if you have people who are such, so educated, so cosmopolitan, uh, who believe that that is an actual reality, you know, not 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 some sort of metaphor, but it, that, it, that it happened, and they form their worldview around this, and what you're really encountering is not just, it's not a continuum, it's just oppositional worldviews in the way that, um, in the way that, you know, heliocentrism and geocentrism are oppositional worldviews. And in order to have If you're trying to have some parts of heliocentrism and some parts of geocentrism and hold them at the same time, that that project is actually more difficult than it would be to abandon one and just ascribe to the other altogether. And I think that's similar to what what I'm doing.
0: Well, having been around the block with Majid a few times, I think I know what he would say here. So I'm going to give my best version of Majid without the accent and without the fine clothes and see what you do with it. So I think he would make two points here. He would say that, one, you seem to be ignoring what has happened for the other great monotheisms, Christianity and Judaism, the way in which believers have, for the most part in a way that has been unacknowledged, or at least need not be spelled out to their embarrassment, they have relaxed their hold on the more insidious, divisive, irrational doctrines and just kept the, quote, good parts. And so there you have Christians who take their Christianity very seriously, apparently, but don't waste a lot of time, or really any time, thinking about hell, or thinking about the the physics of resurrecting the dead, or anything else that doesn't repay a lot of attention for a rational person in the year 2017. So why couldn't that also happen, with respect to Islam? And if you think that's far-fetched to suggest that it would, how is it less far-fetched to say that 1.7 billion Muslims will apostatize and become atheists in any time frame that could be helpful to the future of our societies? To
1: answer that, I don't think um, I don't think all all Muslims need to apostatize. And that's not what I'm aiming for. A certain amount of ex-Muslims exist as, as of now. We already know that there are ex-Muslims, a certain percentage of, of people in the Muslim world are already ex-Muslims, they are already atheists who, who don't believe. I think if we were just to get to a position where those people were able to be more vocal about their lack of faith, uh, it, would be, it would be enough to just plant a seed of doubt with, in, in Muslims as a whole, because I don't think the problem of, of extremism is, is due to conservatism as a whole. It's due to this idea that they, that, that they are 100% sure of the truth of their faith. And all you would need to do is, is put in just enough doubt that it goes from 100% to 98 or, or or even 99 And that might be enough that they don't hurt other people. And all of that goes back to that, that seed of doubt, I think, needs to be aimed from a, from a secular perspective, and to say that it, it's a deny the very foundations of their faith altogether. And then to address the, the comment that, well, Christianity has gone through this, and so has Judaism, I think this, uh, this view doesn't really consider, it doesn't um, consider sufficiently the, the differences that that um, are, should be clear with, with, the, with the Qur'an and the Bible. I mean, the Qur'an is it's a literal word of God. It's God speaking to uh, the public. And I, as, as, as far as I know, there is no equivalent to that uh, in Christianity at all, with the exception of uh, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the only time where you have God speaking directly to, to people. Uh, the rest of the time, it's, sort of, it's, it's more of a game of telephone. So you have, room to, you have room to play around with the actual text in a way that, that you don't with the Qur'an. I don't think the, the, the Bible is an equivalent to Qur'an in that sense at all. It's an equivalent to the Hadith, uh, the scriptures, uh, the sayings of the prophet that are outside of the, uh, the Qur'an. The Qur'an is literal. It's perfect and it's final. And because of these constraints, it's, really, it's, it's much more difficult to play textual games and, and, and try and finesse your way out of it. And then we also have to look at the, 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 the fact that Christianity modernized in a different way. Um, Christianity was not confronting modern science and a modern conception of human rights. Our, our ideas of, of where human rights should be of where civil liberties should be developed uh, bit by bit. And Christianity and Judaism had a chance to move along bit by bit so that their followers were never completely aware of the extent to which that they were abandoning their religion. because in their view, in their lifetimes, they weren't abandoning it so far. But when we can, we can look at it from, from uh, the view of hundreds of years and we can see how far that they've walked away from their religion, but any, any individual Christian wasn't aware of how far that they were going when they were making one little concession here, one concession there. Islam, on the other hand, is a, you know a medieval, a medieval faith. And it's confronting modern day understandings of science, modern day understandings of civil liberties and human rights. And you can't, I think it's 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 much more difficult to imagine that you're going to bridge that gulf and you're going to do it in one big leap rather than shatter the idea of the faith altogether.
0: That is a, uh, a fascinating point that I don't think I've heard expressed. I think that's really interesting to reflect on, just the difference between the confrontation between islam and modernity and the the gradual erosion that christianity and judaism confronted over over centuries it does have much more of a zero sum implication to it and i think it does it inspires the kind of backlash that that we see which is people swinging further into their identities because they you know to give up anything is to give up everything I do take all those points about the unique status of the Quran and uh, the specific doctrines around that. There is much less room to bend and many more occasions to break in Islam than, than in Christianity and Judaism, and that, that's certainly not, that's not helping matters at this point. Finally, Sarah, I, I just have one more question, and it's, it's a, a personal one. Have I ever said anything about Islam or any any of these related issues that you strongly disagree with i suspect you're you're fairly familiar with what i've said and written on this topic is there any place where you think i've gone astray or or aligned myself with with a view that you find objectionable i mean where where have i um disappointed you if if ever
1: oh that's a that's a tough question um at the top of my head i i know that uh, it it seems like just from this conversation now i think it's become clear that we do disagree a little bit on the extent to which we should police undesirable opinions but at, outside of that i can't think of anything that i that i that i specifically disagree with uh, generally speaking um i have a more civil libertarian view on how we should on how we should confront this this faith which is to say that it really needs to be argument cent- central and uh, centric and we need to uh, ensure that we that we grant and guarantee muslims uh, their civil liberties uh, as much as we can because i think that's absolutely that's absolutely fundamental to this conversation moving forward um i want muslims to feel safe in america i want them to feel that they can that they that they have a right to to their opinion, and that that will not affect their status in their in this country, um, that that will not uh, harm their rights in, in any in, in any way, because I think that moves the conversation forward. There was um, there was a uh, Australian Imam, I think Hibbzat uh, Harir Imam that who was talking about, uh, it was it was a he- it was in the headlines. I think it was just, just Daily Mail possibly, uh, and he was he was speaking about how apostates should be killed. And there were people that were uh, that were saying that this is hate speech, and we need to look into this person, and we need to investigate them, and we need to deport them, and 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 I understand that tendency, but I am happy that he is speaking out about what he actually believes, because I know that these beliefs exist anyway. I know that they are uh, they're undercover, they're hidden from view, and many Muslims, you know, some Muslims will share them with other Muslims, extremist uh, groups will hide and they will talk and they will spread these views. And they will do it effectively because they're not out in the open and they have, uh, you know, secularists and, and atheists and even progressive Muslims don't have access to that conversation so that we can't, we can't intercede and and worse, because it doesn't exist out in the open. Someone like me can't, can point to it and say, look, this is reality. There are many Muslims who think that apostates should be killed. I have a harder time advocating for, for the protection of ex-Muslims. I have a harder hard time uh, convincing fellow liberals that this is how bad it actually is in Islam, um, unless, uh, you know, unless, unless these, these ideas are, are voiced, you um, know, in a, in, a, in a public forum. And one of the ways that Muslims will feel free to do that is if they know that even if they have despicable views, their civil liberties are, are guaranteed.
0: Yeah, well I, well, I certainly don't disagree with that as stated. I, it, it just comes down to what we mean by policing, you know, bad opinions. I mean, I, for me, it, it really is largely, if not entirely, a, a matter of, of shining light on them. But you do have these corner cases where you have people being forced to support people and even the livelihoods of people who want them killed, right? So you have a, you have an imam. I guess this doesn't happen in the U.S. in quite the same way. Mosques are tax exempt. That's a, that's a kind of support. But in places like the U.K., you've got people on the dole, right? Who you know people who've, who've moved to the U.K. and have whatever immigration status they have. But they're being supported by government funds and they're preaching, you know, the death to infidels from the, the pulpit and spreading those views. It doesn't seem crazy for the British to rethink that arrangement.
1: I mean, I don't think it's crazy. And I don't think that it I don't even think that it's it's bigoted necessarily. Um, it makes I, I sympathize with Europeans who are concerned about the welfare of their children. And uh, who don't quite understand what it is that they're facing, and you know, it, when when you don't understand it, you're going to you're going to fall in line with any anybody who's able to give you a solution at all. Uh, so I I sympathize with that view, and I think that the ways in which that people who are concerned about this and want to address this issue are demonized is extremely unhelpful. Having said that, um, even though it is an understandable view, this is one of those uncomfortable things that. Uh, we have to just we just have to get used to and we just have to we just have to accept if we're going to be part of a, a free society there there you know there shouldn't be accommodations made for islam and and there are in many ways i think uh but there also shouldn't be any sort of special any sort of special persecution of any kind
0: again it's just all most of the interesting cases are in these gray areas so
1: and it's not going to make us comfortable to choose it. I mean, I, I understand that it, I understand how uncomfortable this is for me to say, believe me, I don't, I don't like it either that, that this person is, you know, that there, there are, I know that there are imams, even, even in the United States who are, who, who hold extremist views. They may be sharing extremist views and they may be supported by my tax, uh, tax payments to the government. And that's, uh, you know, that, that it makes me uncomfortable, but it is a price that I pay for living in a free society, and. I think that, yes, it seems like this is a way we can tackle an issue, but I think that that's, uh, it's the wrong way to go.
0: Well, just to be clear, because I, I do want to get at our difference of opinion here, if, if in fact there is one, but I'm not sure there is. So for instance, I, I am a, a free speech fundamentalist. I think you should be able to say anything, and and there should be no law against saying it, I guess, short of actually, you know, suborning the murder of somebody or, and, and becoming a part of a, a stream of causes that would, that would get someone killed. But, you know, you sh- yeah, you should be able to be a neo-Nazi and, you know, have a podcast and talk about your neo-Nazism, and you should, you should be free to be a, a jihadist and talk about those views without sanction, except for the sanction of everyone noticing and finding you to be a contemptible person as a result. So the, the reputational disadvantage of having dangerous and idiotic views should be there to be exploited. And, and then when you come down to things like hiring, like, so for instance, I don't see how you could hire a self-described jihadist, right, or a true conservative Wahhabi or a Salafi Muslim. How could you? It would be, it would be a security threat to you to do so right? It's just you, you couldn't actually do it. And to force you to do it or to call you a bigot for not doing it would be insane. Do you disagree with that?
1: No, I, I, I agree with that. And that's why I, I brought up that issue as something that uh, presents a problem with, that, with, with the viewpoint that I just shared earlier, that we do, we, we have thought about this. We have looked at you know, discrimination laws and how they might apply to ex-Muslims of North America and how we run and, 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 and could, we, you know, could we be prosecuted um, and how we should word our language and how we should you know con- consider this moving forward, because it may be it may be an issue. And i I don't exactly have um, a solution when it comes to when it comes to hiring and security.
0: But actually, even security, I mean security makes it crystal clear, but a Christian fundamentalist megachurch, you know take you know Rick Warren's saddleback church, if I apply for a job there and they decline, the pleasure of my company, I shouldn't be able to sue them for religious discrimination. They would be right to worry that my presence there wasn't aligned with their their goals as an institution. Again, now we're just in the territory of ignorance here, because I think maybe there is some kind of loophole for religious institutions to only hire people who share their faith. I don't know, but it's clear to me that there's no security issue here, but why on earth would they want me representing their institution?
1: As far as I know, and I think this is speaking that I am also speaking from a fair bit of ignorance here. I think religious schools, for example, can 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 choose to you know, clergy. The pe- you can, if you if you work for a church, you can choose to you can choose to hire people who believe in the in the Christian faith. Um, I think there's some precedent for that. Um, what might be clarifying in this for this particular example. Is if the people that you're hiring uh, believe in something that directly contradicts with the mission of your organization, and some organizations are mission-based and some organizations are not mission-based, uh, and it, you know to, to the extent that if you're a telecom, you know, company, you don't have a mission that that feels one way or another about religious conservatism, but if you are an atheist organization, you do, and your mission aligns closely with that. Uh, with with that ideology, so if someone were to present uh, the opposing viewpoint, you know, I think there might be there might be some wiggle room there, and there might be some justification to say that this person presents uh, a problem that would interfere with our operations in a way that um, would not if it was just a general company.
0: Yeah, well, these these cases are, uh, I think, are going to become more and more relevant going forward because it's just. You know, this issue isn't going away, and clearly we have not found a way to talk about it that is satisfyingly rational and productive and leading to political outcomes that most of us want. It's just a, it's the Wild West out there, and you, you speak three intelligible sentences on this topic, and you're either called a racist or some other distracting thing happens. So it's really a pleasure to have you as a resource, Sarah, to talk about these things, because. As uh, is now perfectly clear to our listeners, you have a very unique job and um, you need much more help than you've gotten thus far to do it. And so I, I would just encourage everyone who's listening to support your organization and um, follow you on Twitter and pay attention to what you're doing going forward. To close out here, please give whatever relevant details you, you want for how to find you online. What, what is the website and, and the Twitter handle?
1: Right, so um, our our website, the uh, ex Muslims of North America, North America website, is www.exm, as in mangoes, n as in Nancy, a as in apple. dot org, and uh, my Twitter handle is at Sarah the Hater, and I would encourage everyone to um, you know follow us on on social media. Um, we are. A, planning on launching a, a student tour that we're really excited about. We really want uh, ex-Muslims to be represented in this conversation. We have skin in the game and we, we, we deserve, uh, I think, I think some uh, consideration. So we're going to be doing that very soon. And we, we, I, I encourage people to, to sign up uh, so that they can hear about when we go and where we're going to be going and when. Um and, just to close out, I do want to, you know, thank you, Sam, thank you so much for, for speaking about this issue, uh, honestly and clearly. And I know what a minefield this is. And I know the the personal cost that people, people like you, especially pay people who are not from, you know, uh, a, a, a Muslim background at all pay when, when you speak about this issue. And I think it's, you know, th- this is the only way forward. And if people can take some sort of, um, If they can follow your lead, I think we will all be a little bit better off.
0: Well, really, it's a a pleasure to know you, Sarah, and uh, keep it up. I will keep supporting you uh, loudly and quietly as, as I can.
1: Thank you, Sam.